Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, we proclaim how great thou art. And Lord, awaken us in this moment that a day is coming quickly when all the little things we call great down here won't matter at all. And it won't matter on that day whether we were rich or poor, whether we were admired or despised, whether we were healthy or sick today. But on that day, this will matter. Did we cry out, Lord Jesus, in your greatness, have mercy on me, a sinner. In this hour, would you set our minds on that day that we may be saved. Amen. Amen. Here in Isaiah chapter 60, here in Isaiah chapter 60, much is made of this image. It's an image you understand intuitively, the image of the sunrise. Look at Isaiah 60 verse 1. It says, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you like a sunrise. The darkness covered the earth. The thick darkness covered the peoples. It says in verse 2, but the Lord will arise upon you. And this image of the sunrise continues in Isaiah 60 verses 19 and 20. This is kind of surprising. Look at verse 19. The sun shall be no more. There will be a last sunrise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor the brightness of the moon will give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Isaiah 60 makes much of the sunrise. So here's the question. When's the last time that you were awake to see the sunrise. Today? Some of you would say, today. Because I'm up every day to see the sunrise because I'm a morning person. But when I ask that question, when's the last time that you were awake to see the sunrise? Some of you would say, uh, I don't remember. Because I'm a night person and I hate the morning time. When's the last time that you saw the sunrise? Or maybe when's the... When is the last really memorable sunrise that you watched? Or what was a particularly meaningful, if you have a, a, a little snapshot in your heart? I know I do. One of the most memorable sunrises that I saw, actually some of you were there. I mean, I was alone, I was watching it, but you were there with me because it was one of our tours that we took to Israel and Jerusalem. And the first morning that we, we flew in and out of Tel Aviv, but the first morning that we stayed in Jerusalem, I woke up early to see the sunrise. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem to see it, it's a, it is a blessing to see. Rises in the east over the Mount of Olives. And then that, that golden glow just begins to radiate on the whole city. The domes, the houses, the churches, this is what Isaiah is referring to, the sun rising over Jerusalem. Only in Isaiah 60, 
that little image that if we took a trip, we could see it in the next couple of days. That little image that every human being can understand, that little image is expanded to mean something infinitely more in Isaiah chapter 60. Because in Isaiah chapter 60, he takes that image of the sun rising over Jerusalem and he takes it to mean the glory of the Lord himself rising like a sun over his people and radiating his beauty upon his people so that not only is God glorified by his beautiful people, but what he's going to say is the rest of the world sees how radiant God's people are and like a magnet, like an irresistible force of the universe, thousands and thousands of people are drawn in to, to, to knock on the door and say, can I become a part of God's people? Because how beautiful and how radiant the light and love in your life is. This is a picture of the return of Jesus, of the millennial reign of Jesus, but it is also a picture of what the church is supposed to look like and be like today. Here in Isaiah 60, we see the future ahead of time. This is a passage of prophecy or eschatology, a, a, a prediction about what's going to happen in the future. And here our vision is lifted upward. We get a glimpse into heaven's future work ahead of time and we see it as if it's happening today. And what the Holy Spirit wants to do is when we get a peep through the intervening years to see what's going to happen in the end, it is meant to give us a almost subversive understanding of what's going to happen in these intervening years because we see the final end. The themes running through Isaiah 60 are present throughout Isaiah, but as he drives toward the end, 60, 61, 62, 63, 64 are all about this, what's going to happen in the end. They give us a glorious vision of the future. And these themes are drawn throughout Isaiah. The themes are, they won't surprise you when I list them. The theme is that God will save Israel. And the theme is that as he saves Israel, he'll be a light in and from Israel. And when God saves Israel and he gives his light to Israel, he shares his beautiful glory with Israel. So that what happens is that when the beautiful glory of God radiates out of Israel, all of the nations are drawn to see what kind of a God can do this. And they, and, and they all knock on the door and they say, how can I get in on that? Israel experiences God's glory and God's beauty. And then it, Israel expresses God's glory and beauty to the whole world. In its Old Testament context, as a prophecy, this is explaining what's going to happen when Jesus returns to Jerusalem. So there's a prophetic element to it. But you know, in addition to that, there's also a right now present living and active element to it because it's meant to describe, if you'll hear me and I hope that you'll believe this and get behind it, it's meant to describe what's happening or supposed to happen in your life today if you are a covenant member of this congregation. Because is it not true that when God saved you, he put his light and his glory inside of you? And now that God's light and God's glory is inside of you, God 
intends for the people around you to see what kind of God God is like when they look at you. To be drawn to the beauty of the Savior by the way his light and his love radiates out of your life. This chapter is about the coming glory of Jesus reigning from Jerusalem. The way that we interpret this passage in our, in our church's sort of expanded understanding of the doctrine of end times is we're a premillennial church. We, we actually believe that this chapter is describing what Revelation 20 describes, that when Jesus returns to Jerusalem, he will reign from Jerusalem for 1,000 years on this earth. There are many Old Testament passages that, that come to fruition if you take Revelation 20 literally, like I do. That portion of Revelation is, uh, is explaining what's going to happen and th when these things happen. So there's an immediate interpretation in our prophetic understanding of how Isaiah 60 leads us through to Revelation 20. But there's a contemporary understanding too because these themes are all over what we're supposed to be as a church here and now. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together and they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. They'll bring gold and frankincense. They'll bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to the windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, and the ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you. He has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. In my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, to beautify the palace of my sanctuary. I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low before you. All who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They'll call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you had been forsaken and hated with no one passing through you, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. 
You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Israel. Instead of bronze, I'm gonna give you gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. And you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more. Verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor the brightness of the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and the days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They'll possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord in its time. I will hasten it. What a marvelous chapter describing your future. I bet you didn't know that one of the things you have to look forward to is that all the camels of Midian and Ephah will be your pets. How awesome is that? There's so much here to celebrate. Look at verse five. Uh, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the wealth of nations shall come to you. At the outset there in verse five, I just see two reasons that we should celebrate. One is internal and one is external. You see it? Internally, your heart will thrill and exult. When Jesus returns, there'll be a peace. There'll be an exultation like the waves of the sea replace each other faster and faster, the waves of joy and exultation that, that will well up internally in us are indescribable. There's an internal joy, but there is also an external abundance of gold and pearls and wealth and camels and gold and frankincense. There's the material wealth of all the nations pouring into Jerusalem. We believe that when Jesus returns, what Revelation 20 describes is that when King Jesus reigns on this earth, the same earth where the curse is found, this earth, all the wealth of all the nations will stream in. And when, when Jesus reigns during those thousand years, the conditions will be optimal for human flourishing. The things, the things that we'll accomplish the things that men and women will do all for the praise and glory of Jesus will be amazing. Notice how a couple of times here he describes your kids, your sons, your daughters. In the very end, in verse 22, he says, even though you were like despised and little, the littlest one becomes a whole mighty clan. This picks up the, the massive Old Testament uh, theme of the seed, the curse of barrenness that you have no offspring and the, the fruitful seed. Look back uh, a few chapters back. Look at Isaiah 49, 18 to 22. Look at Isaiah 49, verse 18. 
This is moving from bereavement and barrenness to blessing. Isaiah 49, verse 18. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places, you see that in verse 19? Your waste and desolate places, your devastated land, surely now that place will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away and the children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell. And then you'll say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and put away. And who brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. And from where have all these come? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hands to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they'll bring your sons in your arms and your daughters shall be carried on your shoulder. What a picture. From bereavement and barrenness to looking around and saying, I have so many giggling, happy kids. I don't have anywhere to put them. I need a bigger house because there's too much laughter and joy in this place. What a picture. This is a prophetic picture of what ultimately will happen when Jesus returns. But it is also a picture ahead of time that is not only meant to be, but I am telling you as living proof that I watch this picture come to pass month after month and year after year. Today, there's a, there's a, let's say there's a woman in this room right now. And a couple of years ago, she was so alone. And she was so bereaved that she was suicidal. But Jesus met her. And she has become a covenant member of this little congregation. And now she has so many family members and so many friends around her here that she has joy today that she couldn't even have fathomed being possible for somebody else, much less for her two years ago. This is what the Lord does. Or take, a, take not one individual, take a group. This is also a true story. A night. 1927, 1927, group of about a couple dozen people said, why don't we make a church? And they got together and they prayed. And now through the years from 1927 down through to today, that little group of people go through trouble. Sometimes they get mad at each other. Sometimes they work things out. Sometimes they have hard trouble. But they, they, all through the years, they preach the gospel. They speak the gospel to each other so that year after year and decade after decade, they have to build a new place because they need more room. This is what the Lord does because light is meant to shine to everyone everywhere. Love the image of the sunrise. There's also the image of the ships in verses eight and nine. It says the ship fly as fast as a cloud to bring in the wealth of nations, to bring it into Israel. I know we like being on a ship, or most of us do. 
whether it's Lake Michigan or the ocean, understand that in Old Testament literature, the ships flying in like clouds was always a bad thing, not a good thing. Because all of Israel's enemies, they came in on those ships. And the sea is scary and the ships coming in is always something to be dreaded. And Isaiah inverts that image here and he says, all these ships are flying in, but it's not, it's not catapults and spears that they're bringing with them. It's all of their wealth that they're bringing to lay down at the feet of Jesus as he rules from Jerusalem. You see it, they're not invading forces, but they're streaming in to bring offerings and to ask, is there room in your worship service for us? What a reversal. Church is persecuted today. Church won't be persecuted forever. The image here is, you know, our beloved, our beloved uh, family, the Phipps who are in Turkey, the police harass them. The image here is of the police. Like, 28 vans filled with all the police in the city pulling up to the church service on Sunday morning. Every one of these 28 vans, the doors open and the police file out and they put down their badges and they put down their helmets and they put down their guns and they all walk into the church and come up to the front of the church and they say, is there mercy for me? Can I get in on this? Can I be saved? This is the image that Isaiah shows us here. And it's so beautiful. uh, Maybe an illustration from our own Western material situation. What are the biggest biggest companies on the uh, NASDAQ? Apple, Google, Amazon. All these companies, I don't know, what do I know about companies? But I know that they're like whacked out and they're all celebrating moral perversion and making money off of it. But the image here is that all of those companies, they use all of their resources to call little Bible church pastors like me and say, um, we have like uh, $300 billion. Could you use that somehow in your ministry? Because we, we now believe that Jesus is the only way. And we don't want to waste any of our resources on anything else. It's unbelievable to us. And yet these eschatological promises are meant for us to see ahead of time the kinds of things that Jesus will do. How powerful is that? I want you to link, church, the... uh, Uh, I want to show you a phrase in verse 6, a phrase in verse 7, and a phrase in verse 9. Phrase in verse 6, the end of verse 6. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Then this phrase at the end of verse 9. And I will beautify my beautiful house. So we have the praises of the Lord. We have the beauty of the house of the Lord. And then the end of verse 9. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Verse 6, the praises of the Lord. Verse 7, the beauty of the house of the Lord. And then verse 9, that very direct second person, he has made you. 
He has made you, he has made you beautiful. So here's something for fruitful meditation. I almost don't want to over talk about it. I want to challenge you to meditate on this. Talk about it at lunchtime. What's the connection between praising God, praising God, the beauty of God's church, and God making his people beautiful? When we praise God, all the hymns that Brennan led us in this morning, we were declaring the beauty of the Lord. But is there not something to it that it is in the moment and the activity of declaring the beauty of the Lord that God himself makes us beautiful? There's something to that. And it's what Isaiah is getting at here. And he says in verse 8, everyone wants to get in on it. Everyone want to get, wants to get in on it. They're flying in like clouds. Amazon's just, just saying, you can have everything in my warehouse. I, I want to give all my money to Jesus. They're coming in like that because they see how beautiful God is because they see how beautiful God has made his people. Are you in on that? Has God made you beautiful in that way? There are so many church members here who I know who are. If you'll permit me, I'll talk about two of them who aren't here right now because they both went to heaven recently. My friend Dave Hottinger, my friend Clyde Seifert. Uh, forgive me, but I wouldn't call Dave Hottinger or Clyde Seifert beautiful or handsome. They just weren't that much to look at. Neither am I. Neither are you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but be that as it may. These brothers of mine, Jesus made them beautiful in his way. My friend Dave Hottinger, who just went to heaven recently, he, he did not have a lot of money. That guy supported missions at RBC like absolutely nobody's business with the extra $4 he had here, the extra $18 he had there. I would go visit him and pray with him. And I'm telling you, I work here full time. And every time I visited Dave, he would tell me something that was happening in the life of our missionaries that I didn't know yet. He was way ahead of me. There's something so beautiful about that. My friend Clyde, my first, I remember Clyde because my first trip to Lambeau, I had only lived here like a, a year and Clyde took me up there. But uh, Clyde was a deacon here. He helped to keep this place nice. He cut the grass and everything. But I will not soon forget that uh, the doctor, it was pancreatic cancer. The, the, the team of doctors told him it's not years or months that you have. It's like weeks. And I saw him right after he got that news. And it was just the two of us visiting. And I will not soon forget that visit because the clarity with which his eyes looked into mine and the clarity with which he said, I am not afraid. Christ is my savior and I'm ready to go. There, there was a beauty in that. There is an ongoing legacy in that that this world can't touch. You see, Isaiah is saying that when we see the beauty of the Lord Jesus, he beautifies us. 
he beautifies us. Isn't that what, you, you know these verses, some of our most popular verses to think about who we're supposed to be on this planet. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And just as the sunrise over Jerusalem, the marvelous light of Jesus is meant to beautify your life so that others can see how beautiful God is. You know Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what this is getting at. God shares his glory with us right now. Ultimately, Jesus' glory will radiate out from Jerusalem in his millennial reign upon his return. But it's the same principle. It's the light of Jesus in us and that beauty that is meant to draw people in like a magnet. Note that these verses in Isaiah 60, they, they are so subversive and they are such a reversal to the way things are now. Nine people out of 10 today will probably tell you that conservative Bible-believing churches are on the wrong side of history. Nine people out of 10 who would tell you that today would be utterly and completely wrong. But this, it takes faith to believe this. This chapter describes a reordering of society so that when Jesus returns, 10 people out of 10 declare the church is and always has been on the right side of history, not on the wrong side of it. God's outcast, despised, scum of the earth people who have never been desirable in the eyes of the world have always been the ones who Jesus is going to beautify forever and forever and forever. What a reversal! What a reversal! It's like the stories we used to hear, like I suppose they were supposed to boost our self-esteem or something when we, were in, when we were in grade school. This dopey third grader that everybody in the school makes fun of. A few years later, he's the star athlete and the homecoming king and everybody wants to be like him. God's people are mistreated and bullied and persecuted now. But our day is coming. Our day is coming. It will not always be this way. A day is coming when Jesus will return and he will reign on this earth, the same earth that we have destroyed. He will renew the same earth. And everyone will see the kind of king that Jesus is. And everyone will see that Jesus' people were the ones who were right all along. And they'll want to get in on it. And they'll want to get in on it. That's what Isaiah 60 is getting at. So when we look at Isaiah 60, church, let me give you three reasons to study prophecy. When we believe God's promises, when he gives us this peep through the intervening years into the future, I'll give you three. These are three of your, these are actually three of your, your most perpetual 
and unsolvable problems. These are three of the same holes that you keep falling into. And it's the study of prophecy that will help extricate you from these holes. Three of the most common problems that tangle us up. First problem, you could put it together like this. 90 is greater than eternity. 90 is greater than eternity. Church, this is one of your blind spots. It's one of your personal blind spots is that without thinking about it, you think that your 60 years, your 70 years, your 90 years on this planet are more important than your eternity. We all fall into this. I suppose it's because of where we live. Fairly prosperous West. People who live in non-prosperous and persecuted societies do not have as perpetual of a problem with this. But because we live in the prosperous West, we are so easily and readily concerned about, let's, let's keep it Christian, not just that we're healthy, but because we live in the prosperous West, we're so readily concerned with how our Christianity impacts our 90 little years on this planet. Is, is, is my moral side winning in the public square? Has Christianity fixed my marriage problems and my parenting problems yet? Now, the, uh, those things are important. Of course it matters what happens in the public square. And of course there's scriptural answers and hope for your failing marriage or your failing parenting. But those answers were never meant to make you believe that 90 is greater than eternity. Because it isn't. It isn't. And the most important consequences of your Christianity are not the consequences that are going to be seen on this 90-year horizon. For this 90-year horizon will be swallowed up by the horizon which is coming. And that's the one that matters forever and forever and forever. The second perpetual personal problem that studying prophecy may deliver us from, it's related, just call it despair, about today. Church, when you forget the future, it helps you despair about today. Church, when you forget or ignore the future, it empowers your ability to despair about today. And beloved church, this ought not to be. We despair over the disappointments and setbacks of the here and now. And just like I'm saying, it's not that the despairs and the, the sorrows of the here and now don't matter. They do matter. But for a Christian, they, they are not meant by Jesus Christ to matter in a despair that ends in hopelessness and unbelief. We despair over what's happening in our lives, over what's happening in the news cycle, whatever it is. And we should not despair. What should we do? Christian, you can and should lament. You can and should weep. You can and should try to help. You can and should try, try to get help and be the help that other people need. All of those things are what we ought to do. And there's, there's dozens of scriptural verses that tell us to do that. We can lament, we can weep, we can try to help, but we cannot despair and we cannot lose our hope. And this is our hope. Isaiah 60, Revelation 20, all the related passages. So the three perpetual problems are we make 90 bigger than eternity, we despair over today, and problem number three, 
we settle for sin. We settle for sin. We settle for what this world has to offer. We settle for what this world has to offer because we act like if I'm going to get anything, I've got to get it now. And we settle for what this world has to offer. Man, I'm, I'm going to rant about something I'm sick and tired of, but I hope it's not a personal rant. I hope you feel the same way that I do. I am so tired of Christian men and women shipwrecking themselves for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I am so had it with that. Why do we settle for sin? Why do we believe the devil's lies if we are men and women who the scales have come off of our eyes and we now see the truth? Why do we settle for sin? You're going to get there in 1 John in our ABFs. You know what he says. The, the, to, to fight the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. What does he say? Don't settle for sin. Don't settle for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful. Why, why, why? Because this world is passing away. That's why eschatology, the end, that's why. Young man, you are never going to get over your pornography problem if you do not believe that Jesus is coming back. This makes all the difference in the world. And I've just had it with Christians believing they're going to get a whole meal out of a piece of juicy fruit gum. This world is passing away. What? Why would you do that? Why would you build a house out of balloons? They pop, they deflate. This world is passing away. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Don't trade your soul for that. I'm, I'm not that into colored charts explaining everything about prophecy, but I'll tell you, I am so into declaring prophecies so that God's people fear the Lord and vanquish the evil one. This is what matters. Down through the end of the chapter, he affirms verse 11 that the gates are going to continually be open. I like verse 11. He says, he says uh, you know, uh, we miss Mayberry where we didn't have to lock our doors, right? Why do we lock our doors? So that nobody steals from us. But if you catch what he's saying in verses 11 through 14, he's saying you can't put a lock on your door. But it's not because you're afraid that someone's going to come in and steal from you. You can't put a lock on your door because all of the nations and Amazon and Apple and all of the residents of Turkey and everyone else, you, you can't lock your doors because there are too many of them trying to stream in and give you all that they have and worship Jesus. That's why you can't lock your doors. What a reversal. What a reversal. Perhaps verse 21 brings it together with its declaration, your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. He says there, you see the beginning of verse 21? 
God makes his people righteous. You see the end of verse 21? So that he might be glorified. The history of Israel is God taking unworthy, unrighteous people and making them righteous for his glory. The history of Racine Bible Church is God taking unrighteous, unworthy people and making them righteous for his glory. And then as it draws to a close, he says, you're not gonna need the sun anymore. It's never gonna be night again. God will always be with you. He's saying, don't despair. Don't let the present horizon swallow up your future. Church, if this is all true, if this is all true, church, if we have seen even for a moment this glimpse into the future ahead of time and we've, we've been able to peep through the intervening years and see what's gonna happen, what are the implications? The implications are, church, we have hope. That hope began in Genesis 3.15 there's going to be a serpent and he's going to take swipes at us with his fangs, but we have hope that one day his head will be crushed. That hope was continued in Genesis 12, the very first promise to Abraham, to Israel. He says, in you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. This hope was picked up in our mission, our great commission, where Jesus says, don't put the light under a bushel, but now that I have all authority through my resurrection, you as my church go and tell everyone everywhere about what I've done. All of this is all, all of these Old Testament prophecies, I hope they never confuse you. They're all saying the same thing. They're simply saying this, when the sun rises, it lights up everything. It lights up everything. When Jesus says, go and tell everyone, all he's saying is that the reality of the universe is that when the sun rises, it lights up everything. There is nothing hidden from its heat. What does this give us? This gives us an attitude of expectancy and it motivates an activity of investment. It gives us an attitude of expectancy. We know that in end times, things will go from bad to worse and we will be persecuted, but we have an attitude of expectancy because church, we know the darker the night, the brighter the light. And we have the light of the world. And when the sun rises, it lights everything. So it gives us an attitude of expectancy, even as we're persecuted. Even though we lose temporarily, we win in the end. So it gives us an attitude of expectancy. And second, it, gives, it motivates an activity of investment. This is the reason that you should give in the offering. It's also the reason that I, I think I can honestly say, I've never tried to uh, like manipulate anybody to get their money, but I've also never apologized to say you should give in the offering. You shouldn't keep all your money for yourself. This is why, this is why. The reason you should give in the offering is because you are actually on the winning team. Why do you want to trade all your draft picks for the losing team that's guaranteed to lose? You, you're on the winning side. Therefore, you should invest in it. You should pray for the ministry of the church. You should volunteer in the ministries of the church. You should give to support the ministry. This is why. Because you're on the winning team. 
So you ought to play like it. You ought to sacrifice like it. You ought to stick with the church through the tough times like it because you're on the winning team. Why would you waste it all on a team that's guaranteed to lose? This is why. An attitude of expectancy and motivating an activity of investment because the sun will be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Let's pray. Lord God, would you lift? Lord God, would you lift our eyes past the horizon of our 60 or 90 years down here? Would you lift our eyes to the future? Let us make this vision of Isaiah our vision by faith. Grant us this vision and grant us this hope. May it motivate expectancy in our attitude. May it motivate sacrifice in our activity because we believe the promise of Jesus and we trust him with all things. Lord Jesus, bless your people with faith and hope. And even so, come quickly. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.